Look, Toast, we have hundreds of microservices, dozens of engineering teams, hundreds of deployments a week. Toast moves really, really quickly here. But the user experience team at Toast keeps a lot of that together. Common language, common design patterns, common approach, good handoffs between areas. This episode is sponsored by Linear B. Accelerate your development pipeline with data-driven engineering metrics, continuous improvement automation, and project visibility while cutting your software development cycle time in half. Sign up for your free demo at LinearB.io and mention the Dev Interrupted podcast discount for a one-month free when you sign up for an annual pro membership. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your host, Dan Lines, and today I'm joined by Brad Pelik, Director of Engineering at Toast. Brad, thanks for joining us and congrats on the IPO last year. Thanks, Dan. Really glad to be here. Been a, a longtime listener to the podcast. Really appreciated the, the content you put out there. And I'm, I'm so pleased that I, I got a chance to participate today and, and talk about a number of topics of interest. And uh, yeah, the IPO is a big deal for us. A lot of people worked a lot of years on this. Got to a really great stage in our journey and there's so much more ahead of toast. Yeah, that's so cool. That's awesome that, that you were there and got to the stage. Now for our listeners, you and I, we go back a little bit. We're friends, you know, off the pod. We worked together at CloudLock. I remember hiring you or bringing you in very early on in the core engineering team, I would say, of CloudLock. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, it, we're actually coming up on a 10-year anniversary, Dan. You know that? I, was I don't know what you're going to get it. me this year for it, but uh, I, I believe I was hired in about May of 2012. Yep. And uh, yeah, I remember where initially... I. I think when I was interviewing, you were not a manager. And then by the time I had given notice and joining, you had just moved into management or, or a team lead. Yep. I think I was actually your first hire. I still remember the first time I met you and I was like, you know, hey, what's going on, Brad? Big handshake and super familiar. I'm like, who is this this guy? Like um it's really great to see, you know, sort of how we've each grown and, and where our careers have taken in the last uh, 10 years. Yeah, I mean, so when you're at a startup, you get all, all of that opportunity. You can be individual contributor, then you get to be a team leader really fast if you get the opportunity. I remember when we brought you in thinking like, wow, our talent level is going up now. We're getting some seriously good engineers. And your career, I think, is really interesting, which I want to let you give a little background on. But the thing that I, I think is interesting is like you're a phenomenal engineer. And then you went a little bit into like the CTO team and building relationships and using both engineering and kind of, I, I would say, soft skills. Can you give kind of a proper background on your career? Yeah, sure, Dan. Happy to walk through. So, you know, I think that in a lot of ways I'm the embodiment of our friend Charity Major's uh, engineering pendulum, pendulum between management and individual contributing. So my first eight years, you know, sort of going up from software engineer two up to lead software engineer at a, a defense contractor. And at that point, I sort of felt like, well, management is the, the way to go. That's the way to get ahead in your career. So I went and did a stint as a manager web development for a couple of years, grew the team, you know, from two or three up to about eight or so, took on architect role there, and then said, okay, I did my two years. I want to go back and work in engineering. Yeah. Join CloudLock with you. I, I remember the opportunities we had, the growth that was going on. And a couple of times in the path, you know, you're like, do you want to go back to the management or do you want to stay in the tech side of things? And, you know, rode the tech side of things to a uh, gig in the CTO team, you know, stayed on there through acquisition, hired a couple of folks to you know, sort of uh, amplify what I was working on. And then I moved over to Toast fall of 2019. Yeah. Went there as a principal engineer and a team lead. 
and spent the time at Toast. Really fortunate I was able to join when I did. Helped build up a, a team, work on food delivery. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Worked on some product-led growth things. And just, uh, again, if we think of CloudLock was a very early stage startup. I think when I joined, we were about Series B. Yeah. Maybe we had, yeah. you know, I think the entire company was about 20 people. Yeah, still small. When I joined, small. Yeah, when I joined Toast, Jamie, I mean, Toast had already raised, uh, they were already a unicorn by that point, an engineering team in the hundreds and sites all over the world. And But the growth was still really there. So things came rapidly. I managed a couple teams. And then uh, this past fall, I got promoted to director of engineering, running the uh, supplier and accounting business unit, helping to lead engineering for the company we acquired this past summer called ExtraChef. Whereas at CloudLock, I get to grow up and go into a big acquisition, like at Cisco. Uh, here, I'm now sort of, I was part of Toast proper, and now I get to shepherd in this new, really great, really strong group of engineers and, and team members into this broader group and find a way to to scale this group. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. It's a, definitely an impressive career, which is why I wanted you to walk through it. And one of the things that I know about you, and kind of when I was referencing when you went to the CTO team, you have this ability to form relationships, I think better than most, like much better than maybe an a- average, you know, technical person. I see you kind of, and you did, you did it at CloudLock. I'm, sh- I'm sure you're doing it now. You know, people from different departments, you know, all the engineers, you know, what people are working on your friends, you know, on a personal level and can kind of translate it to a professional level. So I want to start off, what's the secret to maintaining relationships for you, especially now in a more of a remote setting? Yeah, it's it being way too flattering, Dan, way too flattering. I appreciate it. Uh, one of the things I've found is, you know, as you, as you start getting into leadership roles, whether you're a tech lead, architect, manager, et cetera, the purview and the scope of your work starts to really scale rapidly, right? You, you're inevitably going to be working a ton more with product management, ton more with the user experience team, product marketing. You might work with sales directly, support. Sometimes you work with legal and all these different departments. It can be very far in the area to work with if you've just been working the engineering area. Yeah. And, and so one thing that, that served me well is to just to find a way to seek out folks in those different areas that I was collaborating with. Sometimes it was initially a transactional basis. You know, we had to get these terms and conditions approved. We got to get this hire approved, something else. And start to form just, you know, some personal connection there with the, the group, which has really paid off. One benefit is you're able to really build empathy for the individual. So one thing I found is that with engineering, you know, if you stay too introverted, sort of within your own scope here, it can feel like a lot of external things are put upon you for the company, right? Yeah. Why are we pushing to get this thing done? You know, this this feature's not ready. Why are we going out here and selling it to customers? Why is it, it can feel very much like this is happening and I, you know, I don't have control of it. But as you build those connections around to the different departments here, you start to really understand more of the why and more of the context. And then you can also start to influence a bit of how things happen. And so it's been really valuable in my career to build those connections with those groups. That's actually a great point. I remember maybe being a little less mature in my career early on. And kind of having this like developer mentality, I don't know, it was like us versus them. And what what I mean by that, it's like there was the engineering team and I was really big into the engineering team. But then to me, like sales and marketing, like these are different creatures. I don't understand them. And yeah, I actually think it added stress because it always felt like 
oh, sales is making us do this or like requirements are being put onto my head. And when you don't understand where it's coming from, because I didn't understand the business when I was younger. Yeah, it's kind of like a negative feeling. You don't feel you don't feel good about your development. Now, on the flip side, what I've seen, like you start building these relationships, like you're saying, get some empathy. Oh, I can understand the business now. Like what is sales going through? I can make a better feature. I can feel good about the work that I'm doing, right? Yeah, it pays off in so many unexpected ways there. And you never quite know where connections will go over time because the thing is your career is 40 plus years if we're all be so fortunate. And you you pick up sort of these connections along the way that will will sort of manifest in some way down the line that you can't always see at the time. Another great example here is, you know, when I joined Toast, I was I was hired to work on online ordering activation. You know, how do we get more people to start really pushing online ordering, you know, using online ordering? This is pre-pandemic when everybody was just going to restaurants all the time. And I started doing some data analysis and I found out almost through pure serendipity, there was a customer success team looking at the exact same problem. And we started talking together and we basically built a common language around we were both really into SQL and writing these hard queries to figure this out. And we worked together. Just no one told us to build a cross-functional team here. This was, you know, this customer success team over way over here. I'm this engineering group. We built this together and, and uncovered such valuable insights that paid off, you know, real compounding interest for for Toast as we went through a big growth period there. And having that empathy for what they were trying to solve, we were able to bring that directly into the product to make their lives easier. And in turn, we could provide more insights that then made their job easier. In the end, the customers really benefited. I think as an engineer, when you start doing stuff like that, that you describe and think about if you want to go the direction of being either a manager or leadership, listen, I mean, people talk like, hey, should we promote Brad? Let's ask around a bit. Oh, Brad did this really interesting thing with customer success and engineering and found a problem and, you know, tied it together. People are going to say, yeah, let's get, let's give Brad more responsibility. It was like so, something to consider it as an engineer. I have a question here in my notes, could be off topic, but I have an anecdote about it. Why would an engineer want to form a relationship with legal? So that's like kind of a way out there group, right? You might think, okay, customer success or sales or support, that's closer to engineering. Legal, that's like way, I don't know, way out there. Yeah, legal legal is fascinating because legal can be the ultimate, you know, sort of put upon, boy, legal is blocking me from doing this. But as you spend time, you know, with your corporate attorney, depending on the, the, the size of your organization here and, you, and that person, you realize that they can actually be a great enabler for things. They can actually enable more things to happen. Like, boy, it'd be great if we could capture more guest data for each online ordering transaction. Like, what can we capture? Because we could, if we had this information here, That'd be great. Well, technically, there's a, you know, there's a whole lot of signals we can get. But when you work with your your legal department, have that relationship there, they can walk through exactly what you need to do to do this stuff in a way that that complies with umpteen different privacy compliance laws you're not aware of. They can bring to light. Well, you got to allow someone to opt out or forget themselves or this, and it really. <laughs> adds a lot of efficiency to the process because you're you're fighting this stuff up front when it's far easier to fix. The last thing you want is to release this killer feature and have to pull it back later because you didn't comply with something you had no visibility into before. Right. That's a that would be maybe an embarrassing moment. 
if that That'd were the case. Yeah. Moment. I have a, and that, that makes sense. I have like a little story of my own. I formed like a pretty good relationship with our legal department at CloudLock. Didn't have any intentions of where, where it would go. But then something happened. I was trying to get like purchase something for us around Kafka. I think it was a combination of services and consulting and help us with our, our data pipeline. And it was pretty expensive. Uh, it turned out to be very, very expensive, but worthwhile. And the person I had this relationship with legal helped me out a ton in a few ways. One, she worked on the contract with me and made sure all the things that you're saying, hey, it's done in the right way. I'll help you push this through. Two, she actually gave me a lot of and did it on the call with me, negotiating advice to bring the price down. So I could go to our CFO and say, hey, we've worked on this contract together. We think we've gotten it down by like 20%. All the language is in there that helps us more than it helps them. And at the end of the day, like our engineers wanted this Kafka services. And I was able to say, hey, I got this done. I don't think I would have been able to or would have been very difficult without having any relationship with legal. I might have been stuck. That's right. And, and so, you know, you think of the job of a manager, it's removing obstacles. And so much, there's no blueprint. And so it's up to us as the eng leaders here to find the path to, to, to make these things happen. And so, yeah, I, I remember this example you know, when, at the time there and, and, you know, having that relationship helped a ton. I probably enumerate half a dozen times. We've had similar circumstances of that, a toast, uh, you know, payoff for us. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the thing, you know, as an as eng leader, you, you want to get out of your, you know, you got to get out of your department and start you know, working with your peers across the org here. It doesn't matter the size of the org. Now, bo- both of us have been hiring a bit. How do you think these kind of relationships help you with uh, hiring and recruiting? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, the, the most obvious one is, well, I can put a job up and I can pull someone from my existing network that, uh, you know, I worked with you before, let's work together again. You know, those, are the, the, those referrals are, are great. Of course, the referrals are, can always be a double-edged sword that if you always sort of pull from the same monoculture of folks, you can end up really excluding more diverse candidates. Yeah, And so you just want to balance sort of how much you bring in those referrals. But when you work with sort of these networks you built up, they can find other folks, they can recommend so-and-so, they can help, you know, say, well, you should be recruiting in this other area because this worked well for us. Or this group of folks, we work with this agency and that helped out. It's all these different things you don't know ahead of time, right? You're, you... You have to see where things go and, and you know, mind your network there and you'll end up with, in, in different spots. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, first off, finding good agencies, really difficult. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of them suck. Only some of them are good. So getting a referral there, super important. And the other thing, HR, the concept of HR, I mean, that terminology is a little old school now. Like, for, for example, at Linear B, we have a great people and strategy leader. Actually, it's Jess. We work, I mean, I both work, yep. work with Jess. Now, if you have a relationship with your people and strategy person, they're going to help you a lot with recruiting. Are we asking the right questions? Are we disciplined to a process? Let me help create a process that gets the best candidates through in the most efficient manner. That's really hard to construct yourself as an engineering leader, when you're responsible for delivering all these features and whatever you need to do, plus like the concepts of bringing in great talent, partner with your people leader on that, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I work a ton with uh, we have people success partners, right? Yeah, we've we've kind of moved away from the HR 
catch-all terms. So I work with PSPs. I work with uh, talent acquisition folks. And yeah. Where are we going to go after? What you know, universities are we going to go after? You know, look for talent. What um, academies are we going to look for folks? And the the thing I've appreciated more and more is there's there's so much depth in these related fields. It's easy sometimes as an engineer to think, well, I can understand this and go do an okay job there. And maybe you'll get, you know, 20, 30% of the way through. But when you find, you know, partners that are, they've really spent the expertise in this area, there's so much more richness there. And in turn, you can actually offload a lot of the, the things that might've been in your own plate, offload to folks that know much better and you know, with much better results. We could probably talk about this for the entire pod. I have one more thought and then I'll, then I'll move us on. When you're interacting, so as an engineering leader or anyone in engineering, when you're interacting with another department or like someone from another department, one thing to keep, keep in mind, I guess this is with any relationship, is what are you doing to help them? Like, how can you mutually benefit? Because then they'll come back to you. And like, I, here, here's an example with like uh, hiring and in, in, in people leaders. You know, like for, for us, Jess in our organization, so she's leading our, our people and strategy. She has a new initiative that she wants to put in place that gives us more discipline in the hiring process and ask questions that suit the behaviors and the culture that we're trying to drive at Linear B. And so, you know, I, I'll go to her and say, hey, I want to be your guinea pig for this initiative. Like the engineering organization will be your trial for how can we ask some of these right uh, behavior questions. And then she's super pumped. Okay, yeah, let me work with you. Like, let's do it together. Now, like our, our candidates are much better. We were the first ones and she got her initiative to be pushed. So just, you know, every, everyone keep that in mind. I will switch gears on, on you a bit here. You have an interesting quote, Brad. You have said, a good UX is worth five engineers in terms of productivity. What makes you say yeah, that? So I don't know if I said three or five, maybe five is a bit high, <laughs> but the idea being that, you know, we talk, we've been talking about partnerships and, and different departments here you work with. One of the, the sort of magical productivity levers I've come to really appreciate probably the last five years of my career is, is the role of the user experience partners, you know, sometimes called designers, user experience. And when I say user experience, you know, that career path, it's evolved beyond just do pixel perfect mocks for me. Right. And so. I've had a chance to work with a number of talented designers here. I've learned through osmosis. I can't claim to, I'm not going to claim a full expert in, in what they do at all. But what I found with, with the user experience folks is there's so much depth and, and, and complexity there to really understand what makes an experience actually work for a customer. You know, who's the customer that we're targeting? What's, what's unique about them? What's the mindset of this customer when they're coming in to interact with this particular piece of technology we're building here? What are their care abouts? What are things not even happening with your platform that are relevant for them? And they're able to really understand and synthesize that load into coherent design languages and systems throughout the whole product. I mean, look, Toast, we have, you know, we're talking hundreds of microservices, dozens and dozens of engineering teams deploying code, you know, hundreds and hundreds of deployments a week. Toast moves really, really quickly here. It's very easy to start to diverge in key user experience things. But the user experience team at Toast keeps a lot of that together. Common language, common design patterns, common approach, good handoffs between areas. And 
you know, coming back to my original comment there about one, a good UX is five engineers. You know, think of all the time and how big of an engine do you need to go experiment with design patterns in the field? How to experiment with design journeys that, you know, onboarding flows that don't actually meet the customer because we haven't gone and interviewed three dozen customers in two weeks or done a massive quantitative analysis, right? One designer or part of the user researcher here provides all that context, all that uplift so we can understand things. Yeah. I mean, does the UX team, are they in the engineering org? Are they in the product org? Are they their own thing at Toast? Yeah. So so one thing at Toast that's worked really well is we have common reporting structures. So eng through eng, product through product, design through design, but we operate in a triad model. So I had a real pleasure in working this model where for each group, you have the designated design lead, product lead, engineering lead, and they together run the group. It serves as a great system of checks and balances. And so it's a great way to bring out the strengths of each year. It's like the ultimate three-legged stool. And so I, you know, I partnered myself with a senior director of, of design. I have a senior director of product. And then my individual eng teams have, you know, corresponding, you know, product manager, designer, and tech lead. And getting that relationship between the three of them is just the, 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 the key to really unlocking productivity. So for Toast, I don't know if I, I fully understand the motion, but the way that I think about it, I'll just say PLG for product-led growth. PLG is very important for Toast, yeah? Yeah, PLG is, is paramount for us. Yeah. So so product-led growth, the, the sort of dictionary definition of product-led growth is that you you want your product to speak for itself. So you want to give, have your product, you know, through your product, have have your customers learn to get better with it, learn to discover new features, you know, move at their own pace, discover value with it, uh, identify areas where they might want to upsell to something else. Yeah. Uh, and you want to deliver that all through your product instead of, say, you know, every quarter, you just do a sales blitz and have sales, you know, reps call up and try to upsell something else to the customer. Right. And so I think product-led growth is, it's, there's some really good books out there that, that find this. I think Product Plan does a great job uh, walking you through the, the, the foundations of this. Uh, it's evolved rapidly in the last few years. I think initially it was used as this this engine to generate upsells in the product. Yeah. Like let's give away, let's give call to actions, right? I'll use it on the dashboard. Let's do a panel that says, hey, go buy this other thing here. And, you know, then you'll get some better outcome. But PLG is, is it become this, how do you show this is doing? How do you train customers better? How do you get better at product adoption and show like by doing these behaviors, you're going to get a better outcome. Yeah. That in turn makes your product stickier and a better relationship. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I, w- I was asking, I guess, about your setup of who's and what org, like I had always found it fairly difficult. Like you said something like uh, UX, like, I don't know, back in the day, they would make, I guess, mocks, right? And that would be their role. I, I always had, and, and then there's like a gap to engineering. Like, who are these UX people? They just tell us what, what to build. And that's not the, the right way, way to do it. I always felt like there was too much separation between UX and engineering. And wanted to know, like, do you have any tips? Like, okay, I'm a PLG company. I know we need, we need to do this. One thing that's really essential to PLG is this incredible UX, but this partnership with UX and engineering, like, do you have any tips of how to bring them together? Yeah. So great question, Dan. One thing is, is in the air transparency, we want all the work that the stakeholders are doing on our sprint board. 
So our designers have tickets on the JIRA board for what they're researching next, right? We always want the design team to be out, you know, a couple sprints at least and, and be, have that visible so the engineers can start way in when it makes sense. So, okay, you want a new navigation because this is going to show better retention. Okay, first sprint, design is doing some initial research on this. They're doing interviews, et cetera. Second sprint, now we're moving to some prototype. Now engineering comes in and starts partnering on that. And that way, all along the way, you're sharing this context of why this is important, what you're doing with this. And then all the way down to when it's handed off to engineering, it's a much more natural progress all the way through. Yeah. And again, it feels less like, go build this specification. Right. Yeah, you got to get, I think I think that's the key. I mean, you got to allow engineers to, I guess, understand what you're trying to go for from a UX perspective, give feedback, maybe reject something. Because like the, the bad situation is when it feels forced upon you and you're just like implementing, I don't know, a UI. doesn't feel good. That's right. The last thing you want to do is 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 feel exactly as you said, Dan, like, boy, I just got to go do this thing. Because then the feedback you get from engineers as well, okay, I got this pixel here, I got this. But engineering is now sort of subordinate in things. And we've lost what engineering brings. Yeah, Engineering still needs to be there at equal seat at the table to talk about timelines, complexity. Okay, you're doing this new setup here. Well, you're not considering the, the role-based access controls we have. Design says, oh, okay, well, let me go iterate on that for a bit. Right. I actually uh, don't know if you're doing this or, or not doing it, but I'll, I'll put you on the spot and ask you. I've seen some, I guess, advances with metrics as they relate to user experience. You know, things like, hey, let's share with the engineering team from a data perspective, maybe where our customer is getting stuck when they try to get set up with Toast or where they start going through a particular flow that they're trying to get done. But data shows that actually 70% of the time they're not making it through. Do you all talk about metrics or show anything like that? Because I I think engineers can relate to the data and then say, oh, that's what's happening. Let me like make this number better for us. Yeah, th- this, is, this is really music to my ears, Dan, and thanks for bringing it up. You know, when you talk about metrics, you can get so many metrics that are not helpful. Page views reach a little, you know, have sort of a ceiling on things. You know, if you have an onboarding flow, steps completed in the onboarding flow, that feels okay for a bit, but can end up being a vanity, right? You, you need to work with the team to really align on what are the outcomes they're trying to get to, Yeah. right? Our goal is not to get people to complete the nifty onboarding flow we put together. The goal is to get people operationalize with toast within a certain time frame. And the best approach we're taking today is through this onboarding flow. The way we track success with the onboarding flow is looking at completion here. Yeah. But if we can't see these other signals here, then we're getting some other drop off and we need to make adjustments. That's cool. And so the design team is be so again, this is the ultimate partnership across departments. So on one hand, the design team you know, we instrumented a lot of our flows with a, a tool called Full Story, which enables you to do sort of, um, you know, redacted, you know, like screen captures as you're using the application, it just records mouse movement. Nice. So you start to see like, are people actually making through and doing the steps we want them to do? Where are they going? Are they looking distracted or somewhere else? What the errors look like? That gives us great insight at sort of micro level. We built a great analytics platform so you know exactly what have users done at different stages of their entire customer lifecycle, right? They completed, they signed, you know, they, they got the email to sign up. They logged in, they changed a the password. They got to the first step. And our challenge with that becomes, how do you take that data 
and distribute it across the company to different departments that need it as quickly as possible. So when a customer calls up and says, hey, I'm having trouble with this setup screen, I can't do blah, 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 the customer success person is right there and can say, oh, let me bring up and they can see exactly what the customer has done and know that full picture. So later when a sales rep wants to check in on their customers, they can look ahead of time and say, okay, boy, they've set up this module, this module, haven't done this one yet. So they can tailor their conversation. Oh, that's nice. What I always appreciate about metrics, I guess, or or data is it kind of, uh, there's a transparency to it. There's this leveling of the playing field and I'll describe what it means. A situation that I did not like to be in as an engineer is when someone from UX would come to me and say, Hey, we like the users aren't doing well in this area that you built. Like I was the one implementing it. So I felt like I built it and I know that we need to do this other thing better. So let's go and do that. Now me as an engineer, like I can't contribute to that conversation. Like I just have to, I guess, take UX's word for it that yeah, you're yeah. sitting as an order taker. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't feel good. The, a, a different approach that I would pre, like appreciate as an engineer is something like, you know, the U- UX team or us all together. Hey, let, let me show everybody the data of what's happening. The user's coming in and again, like 75% of the time, they're actually getting stuck here. Okay, now we're all on the same playing field. Like everyone can understand that. Now I feel like I can actually contribute as an engineer and maybe give a good suggestion. So I think, I think metrics is like, it makes everybody a little it bit more equal, a, like in the conversation. Yeah, it's such a common language common, yeah. because now design is saying, oh, well, the reason they didn't complete it is because you know, the the button's in the wrong spot and people are having trouble with this. And engineers look at it and say, well, they didn't complete it because when we do it on mobile, all the things get messed up and we miss the responsive design. And then you do and do the fixes and now you look at where things went to, you know, uh, you turn things around quickly and now you look and say, okay, this week, now we've got this much better. There was a, another quote that I have you here saying, so when thinking about uh, customer experience, you said something like, delight your customer or antagonize them every time you interact with them. It's a little bit of a provocative, I think, statement. What is that? What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, so so there's so much. So in Toast in particular, when users are interacting with our platform, you there's such a rich sort of context that you have to understand for where the, the, the person using it is at. Okay, so... Uh, if you're if you're setting up, if you're onboarding a new customer, they could be opening a brand new restaurant, okay? Which means they got a million things going on. They got a million contractors coming in. They they are trying to hire a staff. They're trying to build out the restaurant, trying to get a website up. And stressful. setting up Toast is very like stressful, super stressful. And Toast is like item seventeen on their on their list there, or completing your onboarding flow might be item twenty four yeah. on their list. If they're uh, an existing restaurant that's moving over from a, a, a different system to using Toast, they have an entire business that they're running. They're trying to find time to carve out a significant sort of migration in their operations to your platform. Third case here is they're an existing happy customer of Toast. They have two locations. They're opening a third, so they're already familiar with, with that. And when customers start interacting with this, if you don't have that context and can't bring that to bear, you end up creating a, you know, almost this way of antagonizing them. Like if that customer that's opening their their nth restaurant, if you say, "Hey, welcome to Toast. Let me treat you like a first time you've ever seen this," that's not going to feel good to them. Yeah, yeah. If you if it's the first time ever seeing your platform 
and they're doing this new opening and you say, hey, here's this massive to-do list. Here's these 45 things you just got to do. They're all important. They're going to be overwhelmed and they're going to get pushed back and you're never going to get it done. Right. And so you have to understand where the customer is at, like mentally, what's their context, their profile, so you can shepherd them along the way, the most effective, the effective approach. And this is hard. It takes, you know, this is where, as I said, the designers are worth their weight in gold because the engineering, we're full on with the, the frameworks to use, how to scale this, how to plug into umpteen different systems here, how to get just new front end technology. Designs over here, synthesizing those profiles, providing the language and the journey maps for us. Uh, and at the end of the day, if you if you nail it, you you'll know because you look at the metrics and say, boy, this journey we customize for this type of customer, they're really sailing through. Look at their their outcomes. Yeah, very very cool. It's awesome to hear how you know you all at Toast kind of think about the user journey, different people at different stages. It seems like you're really really connected. Uh, UX and engineering. It's like a refreshing story. I love it. I do want to get us into a little bit about kind of like how the pandemic has impacted Toast. Typically, a lot of the, actually, a lot of the uh, SaaS companies that usually come on this pod, the pandemic has been actually an amplifier in a lot of cases. We're going to do more on our computers, more online. And now with the restaurants and how Toast is related to the restaurants, maybe my first thought is, oh, this is not good. I mean, I, I see restaurants shutting down and I see, like some of my uh, favorite ones in LA had to close or whatever. Like, can you talk us through what happened with the company and the pandemic and how it affected everybody? Yeah, it was, it was a massive outcome. And, and Again, you know, Toast, we, we serve as restaurants of all sizes. Yeah. Uh, our, our sweet spot is the SMBs, right? The locally owned, the, you know, one to five locations here. And we have, you know, we support, we have restaurants in pretty much every city in the entire country here, all, all around. And, and so as the restaurant industry goes, so does Toast. So if the restaurant industry is profitable, so is Toast. And, and that deep relationship provides a lot of sort of positive reinforcement, positive incentives for us to do the right thing and support customers the right way here. And so when the pandemic started, there was such, you know, if we think back to like two years ago, nobody knew what was going on here. It's such a terrifying time. And we watched a, a toast where overnight, 80% of our business evaporated. Restaurants just shut down right up and, and people locked in their their homes. We were, we were scared. We didn't know what was going on. And you know, again, we were directly connected to that and, and we really struggled. We held on the best we could for about a, about a month or two. Uh, we, you know, we cut bonuses, we cut hiring, we cut back our expenses, sent everybody home. But when it's apparent this was not a, you know, a four-week thing, the company made the really painful decision to lay off uh, half the company. Yeah. It was, it was gut-wrenching. I mean, I was, I think I was not involved in those conversations. It was just, like the the decisions had to be made around, you know, how are we going to to emerge from this with a, a stable, growing company again? One of the ways we went through this is is deciding if restaurants are going to recover through this, what are they going to need to recover? What's going to help them do this? And we really lasered in on on digital ordering and delivery. We also lasered in that that 
you know, previously Toast would, was built on relationships and turns it with a customer. So a new customer signs up, they do on-site training, they do on-site configuration, installation, follow-on visits, and that sort of high-touch interaction, we couldn't support anymore post-layoffs. Right. Right. I mean, every group of Toast got impacted. Engineering was hit really hard. Jeez. Every group, yeah. every group was, you know, no group was spared. And those services that we provided, like we just couldn't do anymore. So we said, well, how are we going to still give this this warm, toasty feeling to restaurants? And that's when we really start investing in this self-service, really understand what's happening, automate a lot of things that, that we just didn't need someone to be doing anymore in this setup. We dropped SaaS fees. We gave away a lot of our product for, in some cases, up to a year. Uh, we launched a product called Toast Now. So Toast is... Toast is a very hardware company too. So hardware and then the software layered on. And so we do all the hardware in restaurants. But uh, with the pandemic, we launched a software-only product called Toast Now. So restaurants could just use an iPad or whatever tablet they had kicking around and get a full online ordering presence linked up really quickly. And so we just put these things out in the market and, and business started to recover. The pandemic was, was received by different parts of the country very differently. Yeah. So some areas kept locked down longer and... and, and or mandates, other parts opened up quicker. And so you saw this very uneven recovery. But across the board, you know, we made a number of good decisions and, and we were able to sustain a lot of businesses through this. There were community food kitchens that stood up that, that were basically built using our technology. So farmers had trouble getting to farmers markets. So they had an iPad, they took our software and they set up like a meal delivery program using our software. Right. And, and morale was, was, of course, really hard through this, but as we connected to our community and saw these ways that, that, that folks are being resilient, it in turn made us more resilient. Uh, and then we kept out of here. And you know, here we are two years later, still continuing to innovate and, and adapt. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like you got some really smart people at Toast. I mean, you got to, you adapted, basically change. Think about what the customer is going through. How are we going to maybe not do what we're doing before, do something different, which is sometimes scary for engineers. And a lot of engineers like, like, let's stick to the same plan. Like I'm going step by step, you know, CEO comes in and says, hey, we're going to do this thing, the service that we used to work on. We're shutting it down. We're doing something new. And I, I would just say to our, our, our listeners, that's usually actually a good sign that, you know, the company is willing to change. Companies that don't change usually die out <laughs> at a certain period of time. But a tough question that I, I do want to ask you, Brad, you said there was a lot of uh, layoffs and it hit engineering. And I know you're, you're kind of seen as a, a senior leader there, you're a director now. Did you have to have any tough conversations like people coming to you? Hey, Brad, should I stay or should I go? I see my friends getting laid off. I don't know what to do. Like, how do you handle that situation? Yeah, there, there were a lot of conversations there. A lot of, it's, you can get survivor's guilt, right? Why was I, how am I still here? I just watched my entire team yeah. lose their jobs. And of course, you have, you know, we were all super stressed with the pandemic. We were adapting to working remote or doing all, uh, adapting this. And, you know, we were, we were already doing our best. Suddenly now half our colleagues are gone. It just add a lot in. And so I spent a lot of time chatting with folks about, you know, just a lot of listening, a lot of empathy, uh, a lot of really giving space to folks to 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 take time they need for things. Toast, you know, we, we've you know a lot of because a lot of companies do the unlimited vacation, which sometimes you know it's unlimited, take all you want, but people don't really take it. We've been really pushing that consciously, 
give folks the time off with things, really sort of keep an eye on, on hours that folks are working and make sure we could, we could reach a sustainable work pace. But it was, it was really touch and go for, for about six months there and a lot of hard conversations. And, and thankfully, as business recovered, we were able to bring back a lot of folks. Oh, cool. Uh, we had furloughed a, a number of folks. They, they came back. We hired folks to new roles here. And, and in the end, we emerged a much stronger company. Uh, and we were able to, to, to serve much more customers than before. It's awesome. Sounds like, you know, a great place to work, to be honest with you. I want to move us to our final topic. Just a little like leadership style question here for you. Let's see where it goes. So if you could only hire people from reviewing their resumes for an hour or having a one hour phone call, what would it be? That's a good one. So uh, is it... So I can look at a stack of resumes for an hour and decide I'm going to hire the, the, these folks. Yeah. Or I can hop on a call and talk to someone for an hour. Yeah, I mean, one of them, I think, takes a lot more time. Yeah, you can hop on a call for each of them, take your time. Or you could look through, you know, resumes and, you know, maybe fi- figure it out. Yeah, g- great question. For me, it's it's the phone call. And and on the phone call, I'd really focus on behavioral, do more behavioral style interview. Understanding how they handle past situations. Because one of the things at Toast we've really pushed is this behavioral style interviewing, competency-based interviewing, right? Here's the traits that we need to, for someone to be successful at Toast. Things like deals with ambiguity, you know, uh, customer empathy, highly collaborative, you know, data-driven decision-making. And so if I had only an hour of the candidate, I'd want to focus on questions around that that are going to show, you know, tell me a time that uh, you hit a wall technically and how do you find your way around that? Right. It's less about do you know Java? Do you have six years React? Or have you done SQL Server and Oracle? And it's more how do you handle these situations before? Right. Because it's a great predictor for how you'd handle in the future. Well, that actually leads. So I have two thoughts. It goes back to what we were saying, like partner with your, you know, people strategy person, because in order to understand those or like ask the, it's it's difficult to ask the right question that will mm-hmm. draw an insight about behavior. Like, it's easy to ask, uh, how long have you used Python before? Two years. Okay. But I don't know if that tells me anything. To ask the right question that gives an insight about behavior, that's a great time to bring in, like, your, your people director, right? That's where, yeah. that's where we work with our, our TA partners, our PSPs. Yeah. Because if you do these unstructured interviews without a script, you really let bias creep in. Yeah. Yeah, I like this person. Like, oh, they're like me, or they're similar to me. I feel good talking to them. Like that's not. Oh yeah, we had biased. we had an hour, but we, yeah, we had an hour. Where we chatted fifteen minutes about football. Yeah, football. we both like football. We should. You know, oh, we feel good. But um, yeah, what we do is we we structure interviews down to segments. So we have a schedule ahead of time: five minute intro, ten minute this question, ten minute this question, five minute this question, ten minute question at the end for the candidate. Follow the script through, and this is all stuff we've done with our PSPs and our RTA partners. Yeah. That's cool. You know, I, there, there's one thing that I, I've been trying to do more. And so we, we both like sports, you and I, Brad, we, we like football, some other, some other sports. And when you're building a football team, you get to pick uh, players from a draft, usually like, like college players, right? That's how it works. And picking the right players for the team is really correlated to the team's success or failure. And one thing that I've been seeing in the sports industry, and I'm, you know, trying to uh, apply it to some of the things that I'm doing at Linear B, it's not necessarily about where the person is today in the career. 
What you're trying to get at is what is your ability to get twice as good as you are today? So, so asking questions that show what is your ability to improve, especially at like a, a startup or high growth company like Toast, like it's about getting better. So like, hey, you might, you might have two candidates. One is uh, better today and one is not as good today. But the one that's not as good today, what if you knew that last year, from last year to t- today, they got twice as better and the other candidates stayed the same? You want to bring in, you know, someone again, especially if you're like very innovative, growing a company that's going to get twice as good every year. Yeah. And, and that's a great, great, uh, great call out, Dan. And, and this also helps too, as you start to look for folks from different backgrounds. Yeah. And so this growth mindset is, is something that, you know, if you can start checking for that in an interview, you know, you can, we've really opened our talent funnel to folks from academies, the coding academies, where, you know, folks that work professionally in other fields for three, four, five, eight, ten 10 years are just moving over. They might only have, you know, three months of, of React experience, but they have a whole wealth and a whole demonstrated history of growth. Yeah. Hungry and, to learn. If you're coming from an it, it, academy, right? I'm, I'm exactly. in that mindset already. Exactly. And so by opening up your, your recruiting to those areas too, you can also reach a, a lot more diverse population than if you just go like, let me hire from the, the so many top engineering schools or so many fang companies or something else. Cool stuff, man. Well, yeah, it's been an awesome convo, Brad. Thanks so much for coming on the pod today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invite and the chance to talk about this. You know, one thing that we like to do at the end here is see if we can let you give a shout out to anything. I know we talked before the pod started about like two topics. I think your team is hiring a little bit and Toast is definitely hiring. And then, you know, something around supporting local. So what do you what do you have for us? Yeah, thanks, Dan. First is is support your local restaurants. They're, they're the backbone of your of your community. It doesn't matter where you are in the country or in the world. Uh, the local restaurants, they're, they're the, the greatest driver of, of business from, from folks. It's easiest, you know, the, the most direct path for folks to start their own business, control their own destiny. They integrate with the community. They build such a, you know, a real fabric in there. And so as you're, as you're looking to eat out and, and get some food, support those places. It does, doesn't matter if you're a Toast customer or, or anything, anything else. Just go support those businesses. They, they do contribute so much to, the, to your community. A second is, yeah, my, I have a couple of positions in my team, a couple of, uh, I have a couple of lead engineers, lead slash staff software engineers. One's a more architect position, one's a more tech lead, uh, working on a new team there. Just looking for, you know, as we touched on uh, earlier here, individuals can navigate, you know, growing or area here, navigate complexity, ambiguity. We're a Java tech stack. You can look on our careers page, uh, find out more there. We're, of course, hiring all over. Uh, if you're an you know, entry-level software engineer or principal engineer, we have roles, product managers, designers all across the board. So take a look there. Hit me up on LinkedIn if, you, if you're interested. It can sort of help you navigate the different groups to help you find one that matches what you're looking for. It's a good spot to work. Yeah, great. So, you know, we'll, we'll include all of the information that we talked about today. You know, it sounds to me like, well, definitely working for Brad, but that Toast, awesome opportunity for engineers. A quick reminder for our listeners, if you haven't already rated and reviewed the show on your podcasting app of choice, particularly Apple Pods, please do so. The reviews really help us get discovered. 
Also be sure to join the Dev Interrupted Discord community. That's where we keep this type of conversation going all week long. And Brad, thanks, man. It was awesome talking to you today. Really appreciate it. I'll, I'll see you on Discord too.